I forgot, I was also supposed to say, oh, everything quiet back there? Uh, that uh, if you need to give today, you can still do it next week, and you can also do it online at radiantA2.com. But, oh my goodness, I don't even want to have to preach today. I just want to celebrate and have a party. <laughs> but I didn't prepare a party, I prepared a sermon. So people are like, boo. <laughs> but we will have a big old party at our new building, and you will all be there. So I'm thrilled about that. Well, today we're beginning a new series uh, it's called Luke Investigating Jesus. And uh, Luke is one of the four biographies that are written about the life of Jesus. Oftentimes they're referred to as the Gospels, but if you aren't a part of a church, you have no idea what a Gospel is. So it's a biography written about the life of Jesus, and we're going to be going through it verse by verse. Is it going to take us forever? Yes, it will. Will I get bored at some point and switch it up? Probably. But we're going to go through it for a while at least, and then maybe we'll take a break and come back and take a break and come back. But I really want to go verse by verse through this and really see what it is that we can learn from the life and the story and the teachings of Jesus. So I'd encourage you, bring your Bibles, underline things in them, highlight in them, circle things, mark them up, write your notes, uh, write little question marks in there about things. Uh, really tear into your Bibles, break them in and make them your own. And uh, another thing I'd encourage you to do is to read through Luke. It only takes about two hours, I think, for the average reader to read the book of Luke, so it doesn't take a ton of time. If you just broke it up, read a couple chapters every day, you'd be able to get through it fairly quickly. And then just keep reading through it again and again. And as we go through it, I think the Lord will really speak new things to you. You'll be able to see new things in there that you didn't see before. And then the other piece of that as well is uh, I'd encourage you to join a small group. Uh, we have a new semester that's kicking off today. Uh, we have some groups that are like prayer groups. We have some groups that are doing different Bible studies. And we have some groups, this is a new thing that we're doing, uh, that are going through right along with the sermons that we're preaching. So if you're here and you're learning about Luke, this is really about half of what you can get out of it. If you go and join one of the sermon-based groups, then that's an opportunity for you to really digest through and talk through and see how does this apply to my life? How do I make this my own? Or if not, uh, we have lots of other groups too because we all need relationships. We all need people who are going to protect us. People are going to encourage us because life is difficult and you weren't meant to live it alone. So go online, radiantA2.com. You can click on our groups tab and see the ones that are open right now uh, and join up or you can go to the information table and there's a list there with them as well. So join a group. You will not regret it. So Luke starts out uh, like this. We're just going to read through the beginning of it. In Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. It says, many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They use the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write a careful account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so you can be certain of the truth of everything that you were taught. Now, the book of Luke is written by a man named Luke, who was a Gentile, and what that means is that he wasn't a Jew. If you weren't Jewish, you were Gentile, and you were looked down upon by the Jewish world. It's kind of the uh, Roman equivalent of a barbarian. You were either civilized, which meant that you were Roman, or you were a barbarian, that meant that you were everybody else in the entire world. This is the viewpoint that they had there. And what Luke is doing is he's a physician by training. He's a very educated and intelligent man. And he's going through and he's recording the eyewitness accounts of the life, the teachings, and the story of Jesus. And he's doing this at the behest of a man named Theophilus. Now, Theophilus was a governor in the Roman world who had heard the teachings of Jesus. He'd heard all the stories. He'd heard about the miraculous. And something's been stirred up inside of his heart. He wants to know more. Uh, he wants to know where all the things that he's been hearing about Jesus really true. 
Have you ever found yourself believing something about Jesus that ended up not being true? I remember uh, for the longest time, I was surprised when I found out Jesus was a Jew. I was like, what? He's not Italian, blonde hair, blue-eyed Jesus that's sitting above my mantle fireplace? No, that's not who Jesus was. He was a, a Jewish man. He wasn't Italian. But I thought that he was something because culturally I've seen interpretations of who Jesus is that influenced my perception of him. And it wasn't based on reality. It wasn't based on who Jesus was. It was just based on something that culturally I had acquired. Uh, I also used to think that Jesus was this peaceful, beatnik kind of a guy. Right? Have you thought that about Jesus? And then I remember reading through and finding out that he goes into the temple and he makes a whip and he's chasing people around, beating them and turning over tables. And that doesn't sound like you know, the Gandhi Jesus that I pictured inside of my head. And it's because I had allowed culture to influence my view of Jesus or even family, friends, Sunday school class felt boards, which sometimes can give you some terrible ideas of who Jesus really is and what he's like. Or what about this? Have you guys ever thought that God helps those who help themselves? Yeah, that's something that a lot of people believe. That's one of the most common misconceptions about God because that's more of a part of our American culture and view of how things work. Or uh, I love this one too. God will never allow you to have more than you can handle. Yeah, <laughs> that's the best response to that I've ever heard. Just like laughter. I can tell you from personal experience that that is not true. You will get more than you can handle in life, which is why we need Jesus. It's why we so desperately need Jesus, because life is bigger and harder than we can handle on our own. That's why we need the strength of God. That's why we need his hope, his peace, his protection, his provision inside of our lives. And so what I want us to do as we go through the series is really look into seeing who is Jesus. Because what, what Luke did was he's hired by Theophilus to go out and to go and do eyewitness investigation and to come up with a report on all of his findings. So he goes around and he goes and he finds the people who witnessed the miracles and he talks to them. Uh, according to church tradition, he actually met with Mary and was able to interview her and talk to her about what it was like to, you know, to be told by an angel that you're going to give birth to a child even though that you're a virgin and oh, by the way, it's God as well. He's able to go in and to even talk to some of the people that were probably raised from the dead. He goes out, doesn't just take anything that he's heard for granted. He goes, investigates, and talks to the people who were there and who saw it himself. And he does all of this because as Christians, what we say is that Jesus is Lord. That means that he is the one who reigns over all, that he alone is God, that no one is like him. There's no authority that is greater than him, that we bend our knee to King Jesus. But for Theophilus, as a Roman governor, he has to say, Caesar is Lord. What he has to do is say that Caesar is the highest source of authority, that he is the higher power, that Caesar is God. And as long as he does that, he can have any other religious beliefs that he wants as well, but he has to say that Caesar is Lord. So for Theophilus to become a Christian means that he's going to have to walk away from his position He's going to walk away from power. He's going to walk away from wealth and influence, being well thought of in society. His life, it might even be signing his death certificate to walk away from having been a governor that bent the knee to Caesar to now say, no, Caesar isn't Lord, Jesus is. So he wants to make sure that what he's hearing about Jesus is true. And maybe some of you are here today and you haven't made the decision to follow Jesus. You might even be a skeptic or a seeker and you want to know more about Jesus. And that's what this series is all about. Let's look and see who Jesus is, what his life was really like. Because when you make that decision to say Jesus is Lord, your life completely changes. And I want you to know the cost of what it is that you're doing. 
And if you're a Christian, we need to continue to refine and come to the truth of who Jesus really is and allow that to change us and to bring our life into conformity with the truth of Jesus. So as we read through this historical investigation into the life of Jesus, uh, really dig into this. I'd encourage you, um, don't just have your cultural assumptions of who Jesus is and the things that others have taught you. Let's dig in and see who Jesus really is. So it continues in Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. When Herod was king of Judea, there was a Jewish priest named Zechariah. He was a member of the priestly order of Abijah, and I probably slaughtered that, I didn't look it up. And his wife, Elizabeth, was also from the priestly line of Aaron. Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all the Lord's commandments and regulations. They had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive, and they were both very old. So what they're doing is now Luke is introducing us to some different people that are a part of the story of Jesus. And it, uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth are who we start out with. Uh, they are people who are the despised race. They are of a persecuted religion, and they live in a conquered nation. Life, they are not living the American dream right now. And it says that Zechariah is a priest. You might think of a priest as being a role of honor, but it wasn't at this time. The priests were despised because they refused to bend the knee to save Caesar and say Jesus is Lord. So they were viewed as these rebels and these outcasts that were to be uh, opposed, and they were to be persecuted and do everything that you can as the Roman Empire to put pressure on them to compromise their belief in Jesus. And Zechariah isn't even a famous priest. He's not living in Jerusalem. He's living out in the sticks which means that he has no influence. It means that he's poor. He's essentially living as a peasant. And on top of having a very difficult life, he doesn't have any children. And that means that he doesn't have the joy that, that kids have. If you have a desire to have kids, uh, you know it's because there's something inside of you and you want to find joy in raising children. And then you are uh, rudely awakened to the reality of that. They are a joy. I have no idea where I am now. I'm sorry. <laughs> But it also meant that they were viewed differently because uh, kids were a status symbol. And in fact, if you didn't have kids, it was probably because you were cursed by God because of some secret sin in your life. Now, that's not the reality, but that's culturally what they thought. That if you don't have kids, it's because you're doing something really bad, and so God is cursing you so that you can't have any children. So uh, he doesn't have the friends that are coming along and helping them walk through the struggle of infertility. They're like, just confess your sin, sinner. You know, get right with Jesus. Uh, so that's not helping anybody involved in this. But then the other part of it is that there's no social safety net for them. Living as peasants, they don't have money that's set aside. They're going to be reliant upon their children to care for them in their old age, to bring them food, uh, to give them a place to live, to take care of them. So they don't have that. They know that they're going to end up dying destitute, alone, with nobody taking care of them, maybe starving to death and exposed to the elements. This is not a good life that they have going on, and there's really no hope for a change of that because the Roman government's ruling over them, and also because of the fact that they're too old now to have children. There's no hope of overthrowing the Roman government, and there's no hope of them having children to provide for them in their old age and to remove the social stigma that's put upon them. And then we also have Herod. Herod was the king at the time, and he was a brilliant, evil king. And that is a terrible trio to have. If someone is brilliant, that's good, you want them to be a king, but you don't want them to be evil. If they're evil, you don't want them to be king. Uh, and if they're brilliant and evil and a king, that's the worst case scenario possible. But he was an incredible architect. Much of what we see in Jerusalem today was actually built by him. He invented quick drying concrete. 
uh, which we all benefit from today. He invented that 2,000 years ago and actually used it to create an artificial ship harbor. It was an incredible thing that he did, just an absolutely brilliant man. But he also loved to kill people. And he was known for his ruthlessness. He was known for being just a terrible dictator that did everything that he could to put down all opposition. In fact, he was paranoid, and he would send spies out into the city just to listen to see if anybody was talking bad about him. And if you were just talking bad about him, then he would have you arrested and you would be killed. If you were trying to do anything to have any opposition or to change anything that he was doing, he would find out and he would kill you. Uh, people got upset about this, and the Roman government started saying, listen, you're killing way too many people. There's going to end up being a revolt, so I need you to tame, you know, tame down the killing of everyone. So what he did was he built a pool. And then if he didn't like you, he would invite you to come over to his house to go swimming where you would mysteriously drown. So <laughs> what he would do is say, no, I'm not killing anybody. I just have this dangerous pool, and all my friends are terrible swimmers. So this is the way that he tried to get around it, just an incredibly devious, terrible person. And as you can imagine, someone that's a dictator like that, uh, people are going to look that are oppressed and going to say, this is an unjust, that we are being oppressed, this isn't right, and we need to overthrow this. And there were many rebellions that came, uh, not just against Herod, but against the Roman government in general, who was ruling over them. For the couple hundred years leading up to what we're reading now, there were several revolts that went on, uh, the Maccabean revolts. If you're ever looking for some great reading, the, there's a book called The Wars of the Jews, which recounts a lot of the battles and the stories about how there are constantly there's these people, they're a messianic-like figure that's going to come and they're going to lead to a violent overthrow of the Roman Empire so that they can be free and all of that stuff. There were tons of attempts by the Jewish people to have a violent revolution that would uh, get rid of the fear and the violence uh, and the oppression that they were facing from the Roman Empire. But the problem is, is that anytime you try to fight violence, fear, and intimidation with violence, fear, and intimidation, even if you're able to overthrow the broken system that's ruling over you, you won't actually get rid of it. You'll just replace it with another violent, intimidating, fear-based revolution that then becomes the standard in the government that's over you. And this isn't what God's called us to be. And this is what we're seeing right at the very beginning of Luke. We're seeing the, the difficulty that they're living in and that they're going through. We see how there's all of these unjust ways that they're trying to bring justice to themselves. They're trying to bring freedom. They're fighting against what they believe is the biggest source of oppression that's over them. But what's happening right here in the beginning of Luke is that God is starting to move. He's starting to stack the deck. And he's getting ready to come and to overthrow the oppressive and unjust systems of the world. But he's going to do it in a way that no one ever thought. He's not going to come and to bring violence to the violent. He's not going to bring injustice to the unjust. Jesus is going to take someone like Zechariah and like Elizabeth, who are nobodies, who have no power, who have no influence, and he's going to use them not to bring violence to the system that reigns over them, but he's going to raise up people who will live a just life, who will live a righteous life, and who will lay down their life so that Jesus might be lifted up. And what God's doing is he's setting the stage for a kingdom revolution. And if we're going to be kingdom revolutionaries, if we're going to be those that God is able to use to bring his kingdom to this earth, then there are some things that we need to learn from Zechariah and from the life of Elizabeth. And the first one is that kingdom revolutionaries, number one, live a righteous life. 
It says that Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous. They loved God and they obeyed him fully. Did they have power? No. Did they have wealth? Not a bit. Were they connected? No. Were they educated? Did they have anything going for them? Yes. They were righteous. They loved God and they obeyed him. And that's how every true kingdom revolution starts. It starts in the hearts of men and women who choose to live differently than the world that's around them. They recognize that power isn't found in what we can take from someone else through violence, through fear, through intimidation. They recognize that true power comes from lives that are surrendered to Jesus our King and receive from Him. That's where true power comes from. And that's what made Elizabeth and what made Zechariah so powerful was that they were people who more than anything else, they weren't caught up in the systems of the world, they weren't caught up in fighting it in the way the world fights it, they were caught up in loving God and living a life that pleases him. And then it goes on in Luke 1, 8 through 10, it says, One day Zechariah was serving God in the temple, uh, for his order was on duty that week. As was the custom of the priest, he was chosen by lot to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. While the incense was being burned, a great crowd stood outside praying. So number two, kingdom revolutionaries worship and pray. So I was saying, is that all we ever talk about here? This is our third, and we've already done three series in the last 13 months on prayer. Yeah, we talk about it a lot here because the Bible talks about it a lot. Worship and prayer are the two most important things to our life as believers. And what's happening here is every... Uh, Every priest had two weeks a year where they would go to Jerusalem and they would serve in the temple. And this was a great honor to be able to do that. And then you'd go back to the sticks and you'd just work there. And while he's there, he's chosen. They would draw lots. And so it was like a lottery system to see who got to go into the holy place. And they would burn incense there as an act of worship to God. And he gets chosen by lottery. And so this is the thrill of a lifetime for him, that he gets to go into the sacred holy place, and that he gets to be the one who burns incense as a way of worshiping God. And while this is going on, while he's going in there to worship, it says that the great crowd, all the other priests, they're outside waiting for him, and it says that they're all praying. And there's a connection here. Worship, going into a holy place that's set apart and dedicated for encountering Jesus, and then having a bunch of people praying together leads to miraculous encounters. Prayer and worship led to an encounter that changed the history of the world more than anything else that has ever happened. Now, when we look at our current system, when we look at the way that things happen in the world, is if you want change, you gotta, you got to have, a vi there's violence that's involved. We have to protest something. We have to go out there and to make our voices known. Making your voice known is a great thing, and I'm not saying that none of us should ever, you know, just like roll over and take whatever happens to us, but we better be a people who put a lot more faith and a lot more trust and a lot more time into prayer than we do into protest. Because prayer changes things more than any protest ever could. And we have to understand that we're always looking to our government to be the source of justice for us. Governments aren't sources of justice. They do their best oftentimes to try to be just and to rule fairly. That's why God has created and ordained governments. But a lot of times they do a pretty bad job of it. Even as great of a country as America is, and I love it, there's no place I'd rather live, we have a very checkered history and a very checkered present. If we're looking to our government to be the source of justice for us, then we're hopeless. God is the one who defines justice, 
God is the one that we appeal to. He is the highest court. He is the highest authority. He is the king over all kings. So it doesn't matter if you live in a terrible, tyrannical place with a terrible person like Herod ruling over you. Don't be bummed out or depressed about that. Do everything that you can to fight for, for what's right, but recognize that the greatest source of power in your life is prayer and that it's worship and it's going to Jesus and asking him to bring justice to the world because he is the only one who is just. Worship plus prayer leads to miraculous encounters with God that forever change history. And then it continues on in Luke chapter 1, verses 11 through 15. While Zechariah was at the sanctuary, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the incense altar. Zechariah was shaken and overwhelmed with fear when he saw him. But the angel said, Don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. Your wife Elizabeth will give you a son, and you are going to name him John. You will, he will, uh, you will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. So number three, kingdom revolutionaries are great in the eyes of the Lord. Our culture always thinks of angels as these cute little things that are, you know, like playing harps and floating on clouds. That's not what happens. Every time someone sees an angel, the angel always says, like, don't be afraid, which has got to be terrifying having them yell that at you. But it describes them as being giants with flaming swords, and everybody that sees them falls down like they're dead or trembles in fear. So uh, I'm very grateful for angels. I'm very grateful it says that they're ministering spirits for us, and I am 100% fine not seeing them. Uh, <laughs> I don't need that kind of fear and terror inside of my life. When I, you know, when I go to heaven and I have a, a remade body and mind, then I'm sure I'll be able to handle angels, but right now I'm just good knowing that they're there without having to see them. But what it says is that the angel comes to him and says that God's going to do this thing, that he's heard your prayer. Remember that God always hears your prayers, even when you don't feel like he hears them or that God's not doing anything. God hears your prayers, and he moves miraculously to respond to them. So God dispatches the angel, Gabriel, who comes and tells John, good news, you're going to have a child, and there's going to be many people who rejoice in this birth because this child is going to be great in the eyes of the Lord. This is a key. We need to focus on being great in the eyes of God and not care what the world around us thinks about us. John, the son that's born, was never well-liked by the world. In fact, as we'll find out, he ended up getting beheaded because he wasn't concerned about what the kings and rulers over him thought he said of him. We need to know that there are going to be people that love us, and God bless them, and the church should be a place where we love each other, and this is why I hate disunity in the body of Christ so much, and gossip and slander and people getting upset about just things that are honestly stupid and trivial. This needs to be the place where we find comfort. This needs to be the place where we know that other people are for us, that they're behind us, that they want what's best for us, they believe what's best about us. This needs to be the place where unity exists because we're not going to find it outside of here if we live the life that Jesus has called us to. We can't live our life for the approval of the people around us. We need to live our life through the lens of saying, God, what's going to please you? God, how am I going to gain your approval in my life by the way that I live? Because kingdom revolutionaries will never be loved by the governments and the systems and the people of the world. They will always be opposed. They will always be persecuted. When we look through the first 300 years of the early church, being a Christian was a death sentence. Because the rulers of the broken systems recognize that true freedom and true peace and true joy was the greatest threat that they could ever encounter. So they did everything that they could to stamp it out.
But men and women said that I don't care about what the world thinks of me. I don't care about what my rulers think about me. I want to be great in the eyes of the Lord. And I don't care about all of the things that culture has expectations for me. If I want to be great and well thought of, that doesn't matter. The only thing that I want is to be great in the eyes of my God. And that's why you see people like fishermen, people who are uneducated, who are uncouth, uncivilized, and these were the people that everybody else overlooked and never would have picked to be on their team, but Jesus picked them because he wasn't concerned about you being well thought of or well liked in the eyes of the world around you. He's just looking for faithful, righteous people who will say, I'm living my life for you, Jesus. I want your approval. I want to be great in your eyes. And then it goes on in verses 16 and 17. It says, He must never touch wine or other alcoholic drinks. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth, and he will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah, and he will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and he will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. So kingdom revolutionaries number four, prepare the way. When it says that the spirit of Elijah is on him, what that means is that there's going to be a prophetic call and a prophetic gifting that lives inside of him, that he's going to be a voice that calls people to repent of their sins and to turn and to follow Jesus. And that's the call that every single one of us has on our lives as well. We're a part of preparing the way. John's life and ministry was to make people ready for the coming of the kingdom, to make them ready for Jesus coming to them to offer salvation for their sins, to bring them a life. And that's the call that we all have. It's that we prepare the way for God to move in someone's heart. And then God even kind of calls some people out there. It says that he's going to turn the hearts of fathers to their children. He doesn't say turn the hearts of children to their fathers or turn the hearts of mothers to their children. He specifically calls out fathers because at this time, fathers were known for being incredibly abusive. They were known for being disconnected and uninvolved in their families. And we see that still today. Moms do an awesome job of loving and sacrificing for their children and being all in for them. And dads continue to struggle with having a heart that's for their children. You know what's really interesting? If you want to look at our, the population of incarcerated people in our country, you know the common denominator? 70% of them come from homes that they didn't have a father in. When you look at poverty, single mothers are four times more likely to live in poverty than if they had the dad there with them. If you want to bring poverty, if you want to bring incarceration, if you want to bring all sorts of other social ills upon us, then be a dad that abandons your family. It's been that way all through history. But what Jesus is going to do is he's going to change hearts so that instead of being selfish and living for ourselves and abandoning the responsibility that he's given us to care for our families and to sacrifice for our families, He's going to make so that becomes our desire. He's going to turn the hearts of fathers towards their children. And it says that he's going to cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. And what that means is that if you, you know someone, like if you're not following Jesus, you're still looking for purpose, you're still looking for answers to the questions of origins, of destiny, all of those sorts of things. And like we come up with some crazy ideas. One of my favorite things to read about right now is the multiverse and a universe generator. That people are trying to find a way apart from God to explain everything that we see around us to the extent of where they just assume that there's a machine that's out there producing universes and that there's so many of them out there that would just happen to mathematically work out that life could exist on this one planet in this one universe. Who made the universe machine? 
Like, that's insane. And what it says is that God's going to come and he's going to make it so that those who are rebellious, meaning that those who are trying to live their life apart from God, are going to accept the wisdom that comes from God. So we can be a part of preparing the way by being a prophetic voice to our generation, calling them to repent and to turn towards Jesus, uh, continuing to turn the hearts of fathers towards their children, and continuing to, to help the ungodly or the rebellious to see the wisdom that is found in God. And then it says in Luke 18 through 20, Zechariah said to the angel, How can I be sure this will happen? I'm an old man now, and my wife is also well along in years. And then the angel said, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the very presence of God. It was he who sent me to bring you this good news. But now, since you don't believe what I said, you will be silent and unable to speak until the child is born. For my words will certainly be fulfilled at the proper time. Kingdom revolutionaries, lastly, believe God will do what he said he will do. And this is what Zechariah says. Like, hey, I love what you're saying, but it's impossible. I'm too old. How can I have a baby? Have you ever had that where God's called you to do something, he's spoken to you, and you love what it was that God said, but you said, how can this ever happen? It's impossible. I can't do this. God, how could you ever use me to lead my spouse to the Lord? They're so wicked and terrible and far from you. God, how could you ever save my marriage? God, how is it that you could ever heal the brokenness inside of my heart? God, how is it that you could ever cause this relationship to be restored? God, how could you ever lead me to the point of where I forgive this person after how badly they've hurt me? God, how could I ever see physical healing? How could I ever see whatever it was? God, how could we ever raise $150,000 in three weeks? See, what God does is he calls us to things that are bigger than ourselves. He calls us to things that are impossible for us to do. Because he wants everyone to know that what is happening isn't just the best effort of any person. It's the supernatural, miraculous power and provision of God at work on this earth to save, to restore, to redeem, to see his kingdom come and his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Everything God calls us to is impossible. And that's why it's so good that we have a supernatural God. God's words will be fulfilled at their proper time. And kingdom revolutionaries believe that with everything inside of them. Because let's be honest, when we look at the world that's around us and we see how messed up it is, if we're real honest, we can all admit there's no way that we can be a part of fixing that. But with the power of God inside of us, with a life that's surrendered to our God when we live as righteous people who are committed to worshiping and praying. When we live as a people who are preparing the way, when we live as people who believe that God will do all of the things that he said he will do, no matter how impossible it might seem, no matter what the timeline might be for it, but we say, God, I believe you. I believe what it is that you spoke. And I'm going to move and I'm going to act in accordance with the words that you've spoken. When we do that, we will see kingdom revolution come greater than you can ever imagine. And we will see Jesus move in our land and we will see him bring healing. We will see him bring freedom and restoration and peace and justice and freedom and liberty. 
We will see him bring all of the things that the American dream tries to promise us but can never deliver because he alone is the God who can do that. What's God speaking to you? This morning, I think it's important that we just take a moment to listen to the Holy Spirit about what it is that he's trying to tell our hearts this morning. So, Father, we still our minds and we come to encounter you. Jesus, there's something that's inside of us that wants to rise up, that wants to see justice, that wants to see life, that wants to see mercy. God, have we been going about it the right way? Have we been fighting as the world fights? Or have we been fighting the way that the kingdom fights? Jesus, have we been living righteous lives? Have we been worshiping and praying and putting our faith and trust in you, the risen king? Jesus, have we been living our, eyes, our life to be great in your eyes, living our lives for your approval and no one else's? Jesus, have we been living with a prophetic voice, preparing the way so that others can encounter you and have their lives changed forever? And Jesus, have we been people of faith that believe you for everything that you've spoken to us? Scott, so we pray that you would stir up something inside of our spirits this morning as we're seeking after you, Jesus, that you continue to fill us with vision for the things that you've called us to do. God, that you continue to fill us with faith that knowing that you are the God who nothing is impossible for, that you are the God who is able, that you're more than able, that you're more than enough. In Jesus, regardless of what we see around us, we put our hope and our faith in you. In Jesus, when we look at the world that's around it and its brokenness, we know that that's not the end, but that your kingdom has come and that it's expanding, that it's forcibly advancing through the hearts of men and women who surrender their lives to you. And Jesus, we surrender ourselves to you fresh and new this day. We bend the knee and declare that you are Lord and that no one else is. Jesus, light a fire in our hearts to live as kingdom revolutionaries who prepare the way for Jesus. Amen. Well, if you're new here today, this is an awkward transition. If you're new here today, thank you so much for being here with us. We know there's a lot of things you could have done today, but you chose to be here, and we're so grateful for that. You might have received a communication card when you came in. If not, you can grab one at the information table. We'd love to have you fill that out. We have a free Radiant t-shirt for you at the information table as a gift, a way of saying thanks for being here. And then if you turn in a card, I'll send you an email this week. And then also, if you want more information on the back of the card, there's some more uh, options to check boxes for more info, and we'll get that to you. Also today we have our Next Steps class, Grow. If you want to know how it is that you can become a more fully devoted follower of Jesus and encounter him and really begin to grow spiritually, this class was made for you. It's about one hour long in the Next Steps room. Uh, you can go to the Next Steps table and they'll direct you over towards that. And it'll just help you walk you through uh, how it is that you can read your Bible, pray, the role of the Holy Spirit in your life uh, to really get going in knowing Jesus and growing in your relationship with him. 
I'm going to invite my prayer partners to come forward. They're just going to be right in this front section here. And if God's moving on your heart, speaking to you, if there's anything that you need, if you need uh, wisdom for decision, if you need healing in your body, uh, if you need you know, the strength to forgive someone of something, uh, we would love to pray with you. We see God move miraculously every single week in response to the prayers of his people, and he is going to do it again this week. If not, go out, drink some coffee, eat some snacks, make some last memories here at the Ray Theater, because Jesus is moving, and so are we. God bless. We'll see you next week.